Hello, it's me once again, Riley. And you can tell that it is just me because there's no one trying to talk over me. There's no one talking about uh, Super Yu-Gi-Oh! or whatever it is they're doing now. Idiots. Uh, I have no need to call for Nate to do anything because it's a Riley solo episode today. Yes, that's right. Once again, I have opened a book, looked at all the words, turned the pages, made some notes, and I'm ready to share my thoughts with you for Riley's Kami Book Club episode, whichever one it is now. Um, I have been reading uh, The Death of Homo Economicus by Peter Fleming, who is a professor of uh, business and society at the City University of London. Um, don't let the uh, title fool you. Um, Peter Fleming is not a business school professor who's going to try to talk to you about like, you know, six ways to jumpstart your marketing department or a you know, growth hacking strategy for accountancy fraud. No, this is he's talking about the relationship of business and society. And I think um his book, The Death of Home Economicus, uh, out now on Pluto Press, or like out actually for quite a while. It's just one I was sort of interested in reading. Um is about kind of the ways in which I think um at once sort of the the, the actual businesses have sort of colonized a lot of the way that we live by sort of taking over more and more aspects of Sort of, you know, just society, like fucking privatization and shit. Um, but also how the ways of business thinking have taken over more and more elements of our personal lives. And the book itself is is interesting. It, I think, w- what's interesting to me about it is that it brings a lot of other lines of thinking together. So as I sort of go through kind of what it says and what I think. Anyone who's listened to previous Kami book clubs will sort of recognize a lot of the shit in there that I've discussed in you know previous episodes. Like we'll sort of see, um, we'll see, we'll see a lot of like the sort of monetization of feeling that we talked about in psychopolitics, or like the kind of irrational consistency and bureaucratization for its own sake, and the deadening effect of that that we talked about in the amateur, or even like the um, sort of hyper exploitation of the poor because they're least able to resist that exploitation you know like the socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor that we saw in like turn of the century london in uh, people of the abyss um and uh you know even you know talking about you know states running themselves as businesses and so on for regulatory arbitrage that we might have seen in violent borders it really does kind of bring it all together and we also talk a lot about you know, the also stuff we haven't talked about yet, like um, David Graeber's uh, book, Bullshit Jobs, uh, because Fleming is really interested in work, sort of he, he draws heavily from uh, the, the bullshit jobs thesis. Uh, so what, one of the things that sort of drew me to this book, and I guess that draws me to books of this nature, is I think like in some ways the core central premise of this podcast, not this particular episode, but the show overall is the ways in which like systematization of things and the sort of the, yeah the, the turning the turning of things into sort of formalized bureaucratized systems while at the same time the kind of creeping influence of sort of instrumentalized life so when i say instrumentalized life i mean like have fun at your office so you'll be more productive you know like 
things that are done in the service of other things and where that thing is ultimately always in the service of you know whatever capital wants. Uh, these things are basically the, the main malefactors of our lives that are sort of just making things worse. It's not to say that systematization is always bad, but rather that sort of systematization and instrumentalization tend to be, well, systematization for what? Well, we're systematizing everything so we can control it more, so we can extract more for the sake of capital, more or less. Um, and whether that's technology or bureaucracy or sort of a, a toadying culture of access-based liberal news journalism, I mean, it's all kind of the same thing, at least the way I see it. Anyways, enough prevaricating. Let's get into the book itself. So this is from, from Fleming's blog, and it's a nice sort of, mm, it, it nicely encompasses sort of the relationship between the figure of the homo economicus and, and, and Fleming's book. He says, Homo economicus is the self-centered, utility-maximizing individual that is at the heart of neoclassical and mainstream economics. Of course, Homo economicus is an imaginary figure, an idealization that economists more assume we more or less approximate. An as-if proposition, that is to say, let's assume people act as if they are self-interested individuals that then feeds abstract econometric formulas and theorems. Um, so obviously, like, like Fleming didn't come up with the idea of the Homo economicus. Um, but nor did people like your standard neoclassical economists like, like Friedman. Um, it's actually an idea that sort of gets most common. Now, I'm going to say it's most commonly thought of as introduced in Adam Smith's Wealth of, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, 18th century. But if you want to really reach, it goes as far back as the ancient Greeks. But we, we won't bother with that for now. We'll stick with, with, with Smith. Um, so Smith wrote... It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love. We never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. So, you know, it's the usual, and I can't remember who said this. It was another person writing a little, a little after, um, said, you know, that essentially we realize that private vice, so avarice and greed, creates public virtue, which is a functioning market economy. It's more or less an argument for the price signal. You know, it's, it's, I want to make the most money, so you know, I'm going to do the thing that people are willing to pay for the most and therefore satisfy the most needs. People will keep doing that until the price gets pushed down. And then all of a sudden, hey, presto, everyone's utility is more or less maximized. Which is an idea that sort of works in a frictionless vacuum. But you know, as soon as you start... As soon as you start sort of adding power relationships into that mix, it very quickly becomes a system not of sort of equal exchange and utility maximization, but a system of extraction where um, some of uh, where most people are sort of very tightly controlled by others, and um, and sort of just and and, and sort of forced to labor uh, until the uh, and where their sort of excess uh, value of their labor can then be extracted. Um, and even like Smith realized this, like he sort of, he understood that the world wasn't a frictionless vacuum, but you know, dipshits like Milton Friedman, um, love to just cherry pick the, uh, little bits of, of uh, sort of the early economic thinkers like Smith that they like, uh, so that they can sort of imagine that their ridiculous propaganda has some kind of, um, uh, 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 respectable lineage. Um, so yeah, we have this idea. Uh, it's fundamentally the human who always acts rationally, 
But rationality is defined as the tendency to think and behave entirely self-centeredly, where self-centeredness is construed as profit maximizing and wealth accumulation. And it's that imagination, that sort of, that idea that, that people will, will and ought to only act in this way or else society is fundamentally not working, that has sort of driven a lot of the sort of, you might say, bad public policy. Um, and indeed, a lot of the bad sort of corporate policy of the last, well, that's an interesting question, last for how long? I mean, you could say, you could never say that sort of capitalism sort of worked. You know, I mean, you can say that it always worked under its own premises as a system of extraction or as a system of sort of dominance and control. Um, but you can maybe say that it's, it's been particularly bad at matching up to its sort of public, private vice, public virtue rhetoric um, since like maybe 1960 or like maybe 1970 when we sort of begin to contend with sort of stagflation and flatness in the global economy. And again, in sort of the late 90s, when we have the dot-com bubble burst and the birth of growth of the sort of national security state. And then yet again, in 2008, where, where we have the Great Recession we never properly got out of. I mean... I saw a Bloomberg Opinion uh, actually post today um, a, a very startling graph that sort of unemplo- unemployment uh, employment has gone up and up and up and up and up, but wages have stayed roughly flat, which if we go back to that assumption of supply and demand, if everyone's sort of equally contracting parties, then we should assume that, you know, as unemployment goes, goes down, right, as, as more people are employed, the demand for workers will be higher, so workers will be able to demand higher wages. But because of the unequal power relations, that simply hasn't happened. Instead, you know, unemployment is going down, and yet companies, because they just there's, there's capital, because it control is so controlling, uh, is able to just say, okay, perfect. Well, we're still not paying you. Um, that's slightly beside the point, but not that beside the point. And that's something we'll explore as we get into the book. So I think the the key premise of this book is not. Is about is not really an analysis of whether the homo economicus model sort of works or doesn't work under capitalism's own, um, under capitalism's own assumptions, but rather sort of exploring who the homo economicus is and what purpose it serves as an ideological sticking point, right? And so the key premise of the book is that the homo economicus is fundamentally unhuman, because humans have more things than constant optimization on our mind. We're capable of enjoying something intrinsically. Um, And I I think the more vampiric capitalism becomes, like the later stage we get to capitalism, the more the rate of profit has fallen, the more it looks for more resources to exploit. Um, So the more it demands from its subjects and the more it must discipline them to act in this way. Because acting like this strips the intrinsic enjoyment out of anything. Uh, And it more and more becomes... Uh, fuel, if you like, for the global economy. It's like we're on a sh- we're on a ship that is slowly sort of uh, sinking, and we're firing the engines by sort of pulling more wood off the hull until you know everyone's drowned and there's just a captain left on the engine, and the engine is a Tesla being blown into space for some reason by a guy who calls people pedophiles and then doubles down on it later. Not talking about anyone specific, of course. Um, and one of the things I kind of think of here is uh, higher education. And this is sort of, I guess to me, this kind of combines a little bit some of the uh, insights in psychopolitics and the amateur. Um, 
because one of the one of the things that uh, Byung-Chul Han talks about in psychopolitics is um, the monetization of the sort of emotional realm, the experiential realm, and the sort of slaving of these things um, to, uh, yes, you'd say uh, the capitalist impulse, right? Where you're no longer, you no longer, uh, you know, consume, I don't know, uh, a Nike shirt, um, but you sort of, you sort of consume what you feel the Nike shirt makes you, and it's, it also becomes shared, and it becomes this almost snaky thing where simply by existing, there are just a number of different sort of pools of capital existing through you. And this is not just, of course, the Nike shirt, but it's your existence on Instagram and so on and so forth. So it's like little bits of your life that weren't, didn't used to be part of the economy or used to not be part of the economy in such a way. So like sharing pictures with your friends um, have kind of become part of the economy while we weren't looking. Um, and more than, and then, and, 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 and so, you know, like it's when we think of like higher education, um, and this is sort of gets into more of the, the amateur argument, we, we think what higher education sort of used to be, well, again, it, if you go back far enough, it used to be just a way for, um, uh, sort of noble and wealthy families in the sort of, um, early modern England to sort of you know, do something with their sort of useless third and fourth sons, send them off to go, you know, debate the finer points of the ecclesiastices and, you know, Oxford. Um, but, but, but let's like fast forward it a little bit. When we get to sort of the modern liberal arts education, it's, it's even the, the, the fantasy people have of Oxford when they sort of read something like Brideshead Revisited, right? It's, it, is a, it is sort of a place to be sort of engage in contemplation and sort of you like sort of self, when I say self-improvement even, I don't mean making yourself more marketable. I mean changing yourself via education into the kind of person you might have reason to value. And now, the, the sort of impetuses of business have colonized the world of higher education so intensely that, there, that now it's really just seen as a kind of job training. And and, and it's, it's run on the sense of seeing the students as customers and, must, and needing to maximize customer satisfaction, but where customer satisfaction is seen as helping those students enter their prestigious positions in the labor market. And so you get something that was intrinsically useful, if you like, well, intrinsically useful is kind of a weird contradiction in terms. You get something that sort of is intrinsically good or facilitates an, an intrinsic good that's sort of personal which is the improvement and, and broadening of you know, your, your mind in a way that you see fit. Now, obviously, there's no way to talk about sort of Oxford in the fucking, I don't know, in the 20s, in the pre-Thatcherite, Blairite years without remembering that it was like a, a, a sordid institution that was you know, there to you know, train colonial administrators of the worst type and that the uh, canon that they were reading was, you know, extraordinarily, uh, let's say it hadn't been decolonized, but I'm sort of using it more as an example um, rather than sort of trying to think of it as some pure and wonderful thing that used to be great before the fuckers came along. Anyway, um, but you get how that, so that there was something there that has, when it changed, it didn't change from a, more, a sort of, it didn't, it didn't become more democratized. It wasn't that we opened this kind of, you know, opportunity to sort of 
become the kind of person you might have reason to want to be to uh, more people. Instead, we were like, okay, well, we could open this to more people because it's important job training. And so that's, but that's a very homo economicus way to sort of think about education, which is, okay, the students are customers. So we have to make sure we maximize satisfaction. And we assume, and, and so we get more students and we're going to, and the students are going to pick the kinds of courses or the kinds of universities they want and are going to help them get a job afterward. And so everyone really is, as so the process of higher education is sort of transformed through the sort of homo economicus mindset into a purely transactional, um, uh, 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 extended training program where you're far more likely to K-hole and get chlamydia than your usual uh, corporate retreat. Um, but if you're a human under late capitalism, and we, we say late capitalism, we're sort of referring to the stage where the production's no longer really expanding. Um, it's just sort of turned on itself now, where, we're, where sort of hyper-exploitation is, is, is sort of almost going... Is going up in between people. There's sort of nowhere left to grow. We're just, I think it was Matt, Matt Christman said this. I thought it really stuck with me. It's the cannibal stage of capitalism when it eats itself, when all there is left to do is sort of engage in marketing or financial trickery. We're not even building anything anymore. And even then, it wasn't even, it wasn't good then. Like we fetishize manufacturing. It's like it literally just is the system is no longer, the system is built on just sort of. Um, ritualized trickery. And we get into that, actually. Uh, Fleming calls this wreckage economics, but we'll get into that in a sec. But if you're a human living in this state, you must make sure that every decision you make is super rational, and we already have defined rational, not in a way that you're doing and being the kind of person or living the kind of life you'd have reason to value, but rather that you are maximizing your usefulness to capital so that maybe you might end up holding some someday. So rational in that way. So in that case, every spare thought you have is going to be spent training yourself for the skills you, needed, you need for tomorrow, every relationship strip mine for business potential, and every spare second is spent on Fiverr or driving Uber. And this kind of, this reminds me actually a little bit of a couple of years ago when I was working as a freelance writer. Um, I always, I had a, I had a, a one, one big client. And there was always, uh, fortunately, there was always a lot of work with this one big client. Um, I could be put, putting together a manuscript, or I could be summarizing something, or I could be writing a treatment for a short film or whatever. Like, there was always something. And so I always caught myself thinking on weekends, how much am I paying to be on my weekend right now? Because I could just be doing more writing. How much am I paying to sleep an extra hour? How much am I paying to go on lunch? And it's a really weird way to sort of organize your life because you're being you begin thinking of the world in this like just really very strange strange way. You begin you begin thinking in terms of well how much can I get as opposed to who am I and what am I doing. And in that sense I think I've I think I've talked about this before. One of the things that really kind of troubles me. One thing I think of a lot and that gives me a lot of unease is the idea that my life could be being lived by anybody, not, not me. That sort of that I'm, you almost sort of wonder, well, what's the point of being sentient if, we're, if all of the rational choices that you can make are kind of set out for you and, you just, and everyone just makes the same ones? You know, I mean, okay, well, I might go, I might sort of work a different three jobs 
but they're fundamentally similar to one another. And the reason, my reason, and they're only incidentally different in the activities that we're doing. You know, they're they're not. They're st- it's still just towards the end of accumulation. It's like, well, how'd you get here? Well, I took Highway Three. Oh, how'd you get here? Well, I took the A road. Actually, it's like, oh well, but we're all still here. Um, and that's I think something that really I find almost an animating anxiety. Anyway, so Homo Economicus has been around since the days of Adam Smith, um, but it was with the rise of sort of Reagan and Thatcher uh, that governments really sort of began to completely rebuild society after its image. So a couple, another term that gets bandied around a lot is neoliberalism. So we get um, we get uh, 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 late capitalism. Well, what's that? That's cannibal capitalism. What's neoliberalism? That's government intervention and sort of that's that's where the, that's where rather than sort of the government or the state being the house and the house always winning, is that business is the state and the house and business always wins. Um, because now, now the power sits in, in sort of hypermobile capital that can more or less go anywhere um, and is always seeking to optimize around the margins. So this is kind of the violent borders thesis, right? That sort of hypercapital mobility has sort of made governments submit to capital and that governments then must sort of feel that they must ign- that they are now the constituents. They are the servile constituents of capital rather than the servants of their people. Um, and so what does society rebuilt in the image of Homo economicus look like? Uh, Fleming uh, quotes here, um, or the quote from Fleming here, be ready to submit 24-7 to work. Debt has transformed your life into a vast economic contract, and capitalist force no longer cloaks itself in niceties but rather is ready to eject you into destitution when you are no longer needed. Um, So the tale of Homo economicus that Fleming tells is not one only of the rationalist maximizing tendency of individual humans, but of the rationalist maximizing tendency that has invaded all of our other institutions, as everything puts more of itself in a sacrificial altar in service of defending capitalism from its own contradictions. So... One of the really so okay, he gives examples of three different people. You know, a woman who can't walk down to the end of her garden, who's got her personal independence payment, which for American listeners is like disability cover, uh, taken away uh, by the Department of Work and Pensions. Um, a young man who went who went into debt to go to university, and then couldn't find a job. And when it came time to pay back his student loans, uh, simply killed himself. And then a man who was made redundant by. Um, um, his his company in Texas, and sort of rather than face the kind of degradation of the what he called what Fleming calls the unemployment industry, decided to go on a rampage, and it is the sort of sheer impossibility and indignity of life for these people um, that Fleming is sort of pointing out here, right? So the, the the contradiction is that is the the woman who's completely disabled being told, well, you have to uh, go find work anyway, even though you can't walk down to the end of your garden and saying, well, I know that, but ra- reasonably I couldn't possibly do that. I, I literally can't. And, and the reason that contradiction is forced onto her is because other more powerful people have faced the contradiction of, um, well, we are a pool of capital, we, we, whatever company, whatever, we just think it's easier to think of them as pools of capital. Um, we were based this much in the United Kingdom. However, we've realized that we can pay out more to our shareholders if we are, well, let's say not based in the United Kingdom or have a double Irish, which is a tax arrangement, or a Dutch sandwich, which is another tax arrangement. Um, 
which is not a Sturbwaffel, although Sturbwaffels are very good. Um, we can do that. We can sort of pay less into the society from which we extract the surplus value of workers' labor and sort of keep more of it for ourselves. So the, two, the pipe goes one way and sort of the taxation and redistributive mechanisms that are da- designed to pipe that, that wealth back down um, are, it's sort of, it's, it's, are gone. And so the contradiction that sort of, that, of, of capitalism that sort of, well, how does a society that sort of extracts, how does a society where one group extracts more value out of the other, but requires those others to then engage in transactions to keep their concerns going, well, how does that carry on over the long term? Well, it doesn't. Um, so rather than accept a sort of, rather than accept a situation in which maybe they are forced to be co- sort of responsible social stewards, um, which is obviously suboptimal because we'd rather they didn't exist in the first place. Um, sort of society and capital have sort of ma- society in terms of like the government and so on have made a pact that that contradiction is then to be put down onto someone um, like this woman from the, who uh, like this woman in Scotland who basically is just told, "Well, I'm sorry, there's just not enough. There's not enough for us to sort of." understand your impossible situation and I'm afraid you must continue working, which for her is ba- basically a death sentence. And it was, she did end up dying. Um, so that's why we say in reality, we have socialism for the rich and capitalism for the workers. So just a couple days ago, Jeremy Clarkson's terrible daughter was the subject of a fawning op-ed about not going to the university from the daily mail. So this is a quote from that article. Emily, 24, who lives in London, explained how she didn't get the three A's she needed to study politics and sociology at the University of Leeds. However, she decided not to reset her exams and reapply, describing how the cost of university didn't seem worth it. Emily, whose father, Jeremy, has an estimated worth of around 30 million pounds, added that she believes she has, the, he, she has had an advantage of jumping straight into work. So, of course, you know, she got into a, a successful career as a writer because she had no need to go into massive private debt to prove her worth to an employer who would then go on to have power over her because she was a, she was basically had the kind of resources in space to not be a homo economicus. She had the resources in space to not make what we, what is for people who are sort of having to sort of optimize those decisions and sort of weigh the risks of sort of taking on, taking different paths. She had the luxury to not do that. She had the luxury that anyone would have if we lived in a sort of society where something like universal basic income was implemented properly, where you wouldn't have to say, do I want to go to university so I can get a stamp of approval for an employer, or do I want to try my hand at writing? Because there are some people who are like, you know what? I like numbers. They just make sense to me. I kind of like balancing books. I think I might like to be an accountant. I mean, I don't know many of these people, but I'm sure they exist. Um, but it, it sort of it is from it, it sort of takes from the realm of necessity, if you like, and sort of tries to to decommodify us and decommodify elements of our lives. So we don't have to do that. Emily Clarkson's life has been decommodified already. The choices she makes are basically just now more or less about personal fulfillment. And the thing is, the thing that really gets me is that Emily Clarkson is basically right. She's correct about university, but like without realizing she's correct and sort of by accident. 
Because people with, without insanely wealthy parents must, quote, take individual responsibility as consumers of education, privately taking on the responsibility for preening themselves to be selected by employers who will then go on to exploit them. 50,000 pounds for university when it's a job training program. If you're not, if you don't need to do it to sort of get yourself like ready to, for the labor market is a terrible investment. Unless, of course, you're already wealthy. The problem is that it's seen as an investment and not as a a right or a um, a, a a decision that I'm just making because I want to right now. It's this sort of hyper valuation of these, um, I guess you could say, of every choice. So the logic of Homo economicus. I've sort of hinted at this before. Um, how it sort of invaded all of society. Um, um, how it invaded sort of the public institutional. So think about the research excellence framework we've discussed in the previous comic book clubs where sort of all um, professors at certain universities are just now measured on how many citations they get um, and then, you know, create works that are sort of uh, appropriated by academic publishers who then just sit on them for, you know, to engage in rent-seeking behavior. Um, or we think about private institutional frameworks. So think about the, quote, more human workplaces that ask us to submit more of our emotional and social energy into our, to our boss to prove our loyalty and that's as we become the company people to the soul. So we talked about that in psychopolitics. Or even individually, as we just submit more and more, uh, deepens its grasp on us. Is, is kind of what, part of what Fleming calls wreckage economics. I sort of hinted at this. So the principles of wreckage economics, and this is something that really came to the fore in 2008. And this is something also like I kind of want to I kind of want to th- say this is not new. Um, Fleming sort of talks about how it's sort of much more prominent after 2008. Maybe he's right. But this strikes me a little bit like people who are like, oh, well, there's capitalism and crony capitalism. And it's like, no, fuck you. All capitalism is crony capitalism. What you call crony capitalism is just, you know, capitalism that hasn't got a nice little mask over the cronyism. Um, so I think really it's always been wreckage economics, as we'll go into, um, but it's just ex- it's harder and harder to cover up with a sort of mask of of mutual benefit. So the principles are uh, the emph- the principles of wreckage economics are um, an emphasis on the capture or enclosure of community based resources. So think of like I said, those academic publishers that have stepped in between the publicly funded um, universities. Um, that pay university academics who've privately trained themselves up um, and then the general public, right? So rents are to be sought from control like this where the academic publishers do nothing. All they do is they own the brand names of the prestigious journals that you need to publish in in order to sort of continue taking over in the research excellence framework, right? That whole way of organizing universities, dumping lots of public money into them, dumping lots of private money into them via debt um, and then and then sort of making sure people are constantly publishing at a record pace stuff that nobody will ever read and actually quite often people have to pay to submit um, is exactly kind of how this model works so rents are being sought from control of things rather than the production of new things that's rent seeking behavior I think we talked about that in an episode with Grace Blakely a few months ago that you should go revisit um, capture is policed and defended by big business in the state. Protests, hacking, and so on are met with terrifying force. So 
if we think of um, there was a, a actually there was an information freedom protester that Fleming talks about uh, who downloaded a huge archive of old journal articles, just made them available to the public, and then when the sort of lawsuit was brought against him that was basically just going to ruin his entire life to make an example of him to others who might think of being an information freedom advocate, um, they, uh, uh, they uh, just, they were, he just killed himself. Um, and it was, it was the, at the, it was, it was this overwhelming sort of, it was the overwhelming force to protect a copyright that was doing nothing but sort of helping the big, big key principles of Springer. Um, but also, it's not just that, that, that capture is policed, it's that sort of chasing after that which has been withdrawn is policed as well. So if you remember the, um, remember the and again, this is that's why it's interesting, this, this book club is really drawing together a lot of things. Um, if, if you remember sort of the episode we did with Dan Hancock's, where we talked about like um, sort of policing, rioting, music, and um, the the sort of the student protests in 2010, um, they invented sort of new, they sort of took new ways of almost like militarizing the police response to students who were protesting the withdrawal of the educational maintenance allowance and the imposition of, univer- of, of fees on, on universities, right? Like it was, people were kettled and injured and it was, it was a response that was designed not just to, you know, preserve order, which again, is arguably not a good thing, um, but in fact, to like meet out with sort of violence, um, protection of the, of if you like the shrinking state that facilitates upward transfer as legitimate and any attempt to reclaim by those at the bottom as, you know, at best unwise, uh, and at worst sort of criminal. I mean, unwise in the sense that anytime we say, what if we property funded the NHS? Everyone's like, Venezuela. Um, anyway, let's continue. So strong disdain for economic democracy. That's kind of tied to sort of what I was saying with the EMA. You know, public discontent for privatization led to a reform in New Zealand, which the government promised it would ignore uh, the result of. And then they went ahead and issued another referendum about the flag, something they don't really mind changing. And finally, that social disequilibrium is to be exploited for gain. Quantitative easing, easy credit, benefit slashing, um, sort of insane foreclosures like we've we saw like you know a computer error led wells fargo to enclose on to foreclose on tens of thousands of homes it didn't own because it was just in such a foreclosure mania and then it's like well that's done you know that's that's over those homes have been foreclosed upon i'm afraid you know you lose and yet they're always very good at finding you know pennies that you owe them and finding ways to charge interest on them so if you think about it this is just the ways in which sort of pools of capital are just exerting force on people. And I think there is, I feel like there's another tenet here, and this is something Fleming talks about later, but I think the casualization of work doesn't fit neatly in to any of these principles. Um, and so one of the examples he uses is that, like, look, when you're uh, a DPD or a Hermes delivery driver, right, you're only paid when you're on shift. You're, you're like notionally an independent contractor, but really, you're actually a DPD worker who just is paid less than the minimum wage because they've decided that they're only going to pay you for the parts of the job that are value added to them. So, you know, yeah, you're, it's only, you're, your main job is delivering packages. Well, your main job isn't really driving to your next package pickup. That's 
between your job and your job. So you clock in, not at the beginning of the day, but you clock in when you pick up your first package. And then you clock out as soon as you drop that package off. And, you know, Fleming has a really good example here of a bartender. Uh, what part of a bartender's job is really adding value? What part should the capitalist really pay them for? Well, um, when the bar is empty, should they still be paid? When they're going to the bathroom, should they still be paid? In fact, in the action of grabbing a beer, opening it, putting it into the glass, and then handing it to the customer, you could say throwing out the bottle is not value added because the customer has already given you the money. You know, making change, that's actually losing you money. Maybe every time you make change, you know, you should pay a little fee for accessing the till drawer. You know, like all of this is, all of this is, is, is not that far-fetched. Um, and so we, I remember I, I saw there was, one, there was one company that's saying, well, look, we know that big newspapers or whatever don't pay freelancers on time. So there was a company that said, if you, that we will pay you now, it's like faster pay or something, I can't remember what it's called, um, but we'll deduct $50 from your overall commission um, price and we'll pay you now. And so that's a, just a transaction fee. Pay $50. It's like comp- because the big papers have realized they can just not pay freelancers or pay them at their leisure months after they promised they would. There is a company that's just said, yeah, you can pay to be paid. Just accept a lower, a lower, um, a lower payment. And yeah, you know, our capital, our pool of capital will just We'll just siphon some of it off. And there you go. More of your labor is being appropriated by capital more effectively. And I think that's sort of a, I think that's, that's so prevalent and so pernicious that I think it ought to be made a principle of wreckage economics. Um, so I think one of the, all of this, the way that this relates to the homo economicus, because we kind of know this has all been happening, right? Like if you listen to this podcast, like none of this should come as a surprise to you. Um, but that, uh, uh, the way that this relates to wreckage economics for Fleming is that the Homo economicus serves to, sh- that, to shield uh, capitalism from its internal contradictions, or rather, exists to shield those made powerful by capitalism from the internal contradictions that created them and then went ahead and imploded in 2008. Um, yeah, because the global ruling class was wiped out in the 1930s depression, right? Like, not all of them, but there was massive sort of loss of capital. And moreover, there was sort of massive, um, then, then the destruction like, wreaked by World War II destroyed even more of it. And if you know your Thomas Piketty, um, you'll know that in history, sort of social and economic equality, like the creation of the welfare state, for example, occurs when stocks of capital are destroyed and capital's power um, versus labor is roughly diminished. Um, obviously, that's a massive oversimplification of Piketty's argument. And I'm sure there are some economics nerds who are sort of yelling at their phones right now. Um, that's fine. At Alex Keeley with any of your complaints. Um, but the solution to sort of that massive destruction of capital stock and the implosion of the capitalist system was basically a sort of new deal with all of its faults and sort of including massive infrastructure spending, the Marshall Plan, the creation of the, of the social welfare state, etc. Um, and that was a solution that kind of if you like, re, it, was, it was a solution to, it was a society level solution. Whereas in 2008, the bankers who worked at Lehman Brothers, they're fine. You know, they're, they're still fine now. In fact, just recently, they held a celebration of their own venality at an undisclosed location in London, probably quite reasonably fearing for their safety should the location of the event be uncovered. Um, and that's because the bailout this time 
the bailout that sort of created wreckage economics basically said, okay, well, we're going to sort of bail out, we're just going to do a massive credit infusion into the banks and assume that just because people are rational and we have the price signal and all of this, that's going to create a wave of lending, it's going to stimulate a lot of economic activity, and then capitalism will kind of just right itself. Of course, that's not how it happened, because that kind of assumes a little bit that, you know, people are free and equal actors engaging in exchanges and, you know, employees can, you know, contract with whatever. So it just gave a lot of money to people on the basis that as employment started to go up, they would start to pay people more. But remember what we said in the beginning about that graph saying capitalism's broken. Employment's gone up, but no one's getting paid anymore. And so the and so really what happens is we have capitalism ended in 2008 or so, and and the solution to keep it going was basically just to keep the powerful powerful by sort of just giving them a whole lot of cash. And then, quite reasonably, they kept it. Um, and so, you know, the Great Recession ultimately wasn't paid for through the destruction of capital stocks, but rather treating ordinary people as economic cannon fodder to preserve capital stocks. And Fleming's contention, which I see is pretty much true, is that a deal was struck between industry and government, like I said earlier. Neoliberal regimes provide support, financial incentives, and tax breaks to industry to quote-unquote create jobs, which is seen as good in itself. And you can just think of the towns prostrating themselves for Amazon to come in and create jobs. But then we also remember that in every single rigorous economic analysis of Amazon coming into your town, your town is basically worse off. That you're sort of, you're, you're paying for a large influx of, of citizens, sometimes by saying that you're even going to help pay their high salaries because then you're going to be an Amazon town. You're going to have lots of these things, these, lots of these jobs. But really what it's going to do is it's going to make your town's existing constituents' lives worse because none of this money that you're paying to sort of have Amazon come in is going back into the town's coffers. And Amazon's, and with all the tax sweetheart deals, Amazon's probably not going to pay much in tax either. You're saying, well, it's okay, it's okay. You know, the, the cons- the, the, you, there's basically a form of trickle-down economics where I say, okay, that's fine because the new, you know, manager of, you know, uh, fucking third, world, well, third or first world slavery is going to spend more money at your artisan coffee shops. And ultimately, if you think that is going to be the thing that saves your like structurally indebted and and like overly stretched your town's overly stretched finances from destruction, I have a fucking bridge to sell you because it's absolute hogwash. Um, so the problem is not that is not unemployment, but overemployment as the state bribes corporations to create jobs that don't matter. The jobs create the numbers. Unemployment goes down, but production stays the same. And that's partly because it doesn't need to go anywhere. You know, it's, that it's um, I can't remember who, I think this was Richard Wolff uh, wrote this, was that we, ch- we can't think of corporations come, basically coming in and creating jobs. You think of sort of, or especially billionaires, you think of them rather seizing control of potential productive activity. It's not Amazon created 5,000 jobs when it moved to fucking Topeka, but rather Amazon seized control of a great deal of Topeka's economic activity. And now that is more, that's going to make sure that Jeff Bezos can still get like $112 million richer every day. Um, I think the real, I think the, the real sort of the real killer point here is just that employment and wages have become delinked, right? Because the jobs just aren't connected to anything. You know, unemployment production and wages is just not linked anymore. Um, like most workers in our economy are kind of like Maggie Simpson with her toy steering wheel in the opening credits where she's steering, she's beeping the horn, but you know, really it's Marge driving. 
And then ultimately, at some point in the in the um, in, in in the opening credit sequence, uh, workers switch from being Maggie to being Homer, when they're then run over. Um, so, how does this relate to the practice of work itself, which Fleming focuses on a lot? Um, there's a whole sort of chapter in his book about sort of the slow death of work, and that's in two senses: the slow death of work as productive activity, and the slow death that is entailed by doing work um, in general, and the sort of ritual and religious nature of it now. So from early industrialism, Fordism, post-Fordism, and today under wreckage economics, perhaps the most critical discussion about the capitalist underutilization of labor and its concurrent maximization is somehow internal to the dominant ideological system itself. Total employment and excessive hours put in at the office on one hand and utter uselessness on the other, a kind of employed redundancy. The two trends look opposed, but actually belong to the same method of economic misalignment, demanding labor's fullness and absence, often at the same time. So if this sounds like a little bit like echoes of Mark Fisher's capitalist realism, that's probably no surprise, as Fisher's name-checked directly. Capitalist realism is not some unadulterated business logic, but rather the imposition of the insanely unreal universe that everyone except the ultra-rich must confront and navigate. And that's why homo economicus is dying because capitalism has externalized its contradictions all the way to the bottom, but it's just that that bottom is now growing. So if you were to ask someone in the 1990s, is capitalism doing okay for you? you know, maybe you might have to use different words because you know, not everyone, not every potential um, sort of, if you like, leftist voter quite can sort of identify their malefactors yet, because a lot of it takes quite a bit of reading that a lot of people don't have time to do. But regardless, capitalism was working well for you know, your standard white factory worker in Columbus in the 1980s. And then it wasn't. But it was still working pretty well for the, you know, recently graduated, university-educated magazine writer. But then in the 2000s, all of a sudden it wasn't. And in 2008, it was working for fewer and fewer people. So the people who are at the bottom, who are forced to live as the homo economicus, is growing. Because you're either forced to live as the homo economicus, or you're not. There's really not a lot of in-between. And now the people who aren't forced to live in this, this sort of weird, unreal, hyper-exploited, hyper-rational, scared animal way are Emily Clarkson, you know? So where we think of the, of the contradiction of work and non-work, um, I mean, Fleming has a lot on this. And again, it should, you should be expecting a little bit of kind of the David Graeber bullshit jobs thing which is going to be a preface to an episode we're going to do in the future. Um, but where it's like, yeah, we see the underutilization, demanding labor's presence and its absence, its fullness and its emptiness, which is that we sort of sit at, at jobs, sort of m many of us, sort of manipulating Excel spreadsheets that we know are irrelevant, or just maybe checking email for a little while, but then looking busy, sort of putting in work as ritual rather than work as productive activity, as a kind of religion. And it's, again, just like everything else, it's a system of control and domination. So we speak of, like, uh, the death of Moritz Erhardt, who was a Bank of America intern who put in um, a 72-hour shift and then promptly died. And how, really, for him, employment was a total ritual, a self-flagellating ritual. Um, and this is... And, and, and because it was... Because the more you... Especially in a job like this, it's less about what you put in and more about how often you show up. It's like, oh, well, you are... And so Moritz Erhardt should not be seen as a, 
dynamic business genius, even though he may have been a dab hand at maths, um, but rather like St. Simeon Stylites, who sort of is a, an ancient I'm, I think Syrian monk, uh, an ancient Syrian Christian monk, who sort of just elects to live at the top of a pillar forever so that he can suffer and be exposed and demonstrate his fealty to God. What is work, literally working yourself to death um, for an activity that is unconnected to any kind of production, like being a teacher or a surgeon or whatever? It's, it's social usefulness, rather, not production. Production is just one way of being socially useful. Um, but what better way to demonstrate your just fealty to a higher power than just killing yourself for no reason? But this is why any workplace initiative to tackle mental health, quote-unquote, always fails before it starts, because it fails to recognize that caring for an employee is like caring for livestock, and the whole point of your enterprise is to exploit them as much as possible. So a mental health, that's why mental health programs offered by companies often are just like, hey, we're going to give you CBT so you can sort of cope with all of the mad shit we make you do. Um, in fact... Uh, for that, if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to our episode "Mindfulness Meltdown" with author Maggie Van Eyck, which is from I think eight months ago or so. It's also pretty good. Um, yeah, like I said, this is really pulling a lot of stuff together. Um, and so, like, just and just so, just going back to that for a second, right? Like, remember the uh, the theor- our theoretical bartender from earlier, who's actually just going to be paid for the time when she's physically pouring the beer into the glass because that's the only part of her job that's really her job. She shows up to work when she grabs the beer. She leaves work when, she's, when she throws it away, and then she's not at work and therefore not paid until she picks it up again. That sort of reorganization of work basically sees the social contract of work as going one way. That there is no social, that, that capital it has no responsibility to anybody else. That work is not a social process. It's merely a series of exchanges where we get what we want. Um, where we all get what we want, where I want money, you want me to do a job, and so we're going to negotiate terms where I do a job. And that it, but, that it, it, but that imagining production that way is between sort of two equal um, counterparties to a contract. Uh, same thing with Moritz Erhardt, who is not really uh, a, a counterparty to a contract so much as a religious devotee um, sort of praying at the altar of Excel. Um, where it, th- that depends on us believing the kind of homo economicus myth that, oh, we are maximizing, we're doing being rational, we're all just rational counterparties, and not that this myth is a thin smokescreen over what is ultimately a brutally exploitative system. But a brutally exploitative system um, where there is no social production, it is merely just sort of the incidents, an incident that arises uh, from, if you like, uh, 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 private uh, vice becoming public virtue, when really, in fact, it is just public vice that becomes public vice and may, maybe is private virtue for the stockholders of Bank of America um, who are able to benefit from the devotion uh, unto death of the world's Moritz Erhards. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that a lot of this stuff is pushed as um, and I'm sort of moving away from Moritz Erhardt for a bit because even though because most people aren't employed in that kind of situation, they're more employed in, say, gig economy contracts, zero hours contracts. They work for Amazon. They work for Uber. They're sort of disposable and tracked and measured and everything. And when we imagine that everyone is an equal counterparty to a contract and sort of power doesn't come into it, then we can kind of you know, hand wave our way out of this contradiction. 
You know, rising self-employment means more and more people should be benefiting from the fruits of their labor, right? But Fleming points out how this obviously isn't true. Simply because tons of autonomously, quote-unquote, or flexibly employed people still require the patronage of a company. It's less self-interested economic units bouncing off one another and more a patronage relationship where you must always prove your worth to your master at any given time. Because ultimately, what we have to remember is that if these people were actually autonomous, they would probably work less. And all of this economic rationalism is really just secularized Calvinist salvation anxiety, communicated ritually as a devotion to the lords and priests of capitalism, which in turn leads us to the idea of human capital, where every person is a mini-corporation that must act like a corporation. But how do corporations act? Think of Mike Ashley and Sports Direct. They are... They are terminally self they're terminally self-regarding incredibly short-termist and ultimately fucking sociopathic if a person acted like sports direct sort of compunctionlessly sort of just hoovering up sort of the wealth of others and sort of ruining lives without a second thought then they'd be fucking put in jail um but we are forever optimizing we're meeting the right partner for our career picking hobbies to ingratiate ourselves with our boss and also lowering our expectations because life is lived in the margins just remember, Doug Evans, the famous dunce in charge of Juicero and Raw Water, said specifically that he sees his employees this way. They invest their time in the company. But again, this is an absurd contradiction because time and money are not simply interchangeable when power is in play. That is to say, Doug Evans, if the company goes well, the employees have invested their time in the company in return for a wage and are more or less kept alive. Doug Evans has invested some capital in the company, is made fabulously wealthy, and in fact gets to stay fabulously wealthy because he was always fabulously wealthy, right? Like the idea that sort of human talent and time is equivalent to capital is just demonstrably fucking false. Um, so wages are depreciated by the sporadic and unpredictable nature of such employment compared to standard jobs, fluctuations in labor demand coupled with the one-sided power dynamic that sees employers alone deciding whether you work and will be paid today, lowers income expectations, and governments of course do little to help this, exempting self-employed and gig economy workers and blah 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 from labor protections and minimum wages. Um, so I'm sort of slightly running low on time here, so I'll just remind you like also, like right now, uh, in terms of lowered expectations. It's not even just in wages. It's in what you do, too. So um, Owen Jones is being had a go at um, because he said that the British uh, media is basically elitist. It's overly privately educated. It's overly people from wealthy backgrounds and so on and so forth. Um, and people in journalism sort of have read this and said, hey, I'm not a journalist just because I have a wealthy background. Then they'll go on to say, even though I have a wealthy background, I've done all this great work and I'm very talented. Or they'll say, I actually overcame my non-wealthy background and you're discounting that, which is so fucking insanely blinkered um, because we've constrained the size of the market for jobs that people actually want to do. Um, and so talent is necessary, but hardly sufficient or often not sufficient for success. That is to say, there are tons of potentially talented journalists who are walking around right now doing maybe driving Uber or working for Fiverr who aren't currently being journalists because they don't, ha they don't have the capacity or never did to work the five unpaid internships or didn't get the stroke of luck. It's like part of being a homo economicus is being, uh, and all, as all of these people are, is being unable to see the world for its structures, of being unable to see that there are biases and that overcoming them, it doesn't mean that you are especially wonderful or at least if you think that's what it means, then you're psychotically self-regarding. Rather, it means that, yes, there are biases, and the fact that you overcame them is incidental to the fact that there are fucking biases. Um, 
which is completely, completely, completely fucking wild. Um, anyway, I'm running very short on time. I actually have more to say, but I'm going to cut it uh, soon, which is that Fleming's prescription here. You know, he goes on to talk about how the homo economicus is constantly in retreat from sort of these powers that aim to sort of exploit and kill and so on. You sort of hide from the unemployment industry in university or in internships. You sort of you you sort of hide from the state that sort of aims to criminalize more and more elements of your life. Um, and that it's that of an that the the act the homo economicus is uh, sort of similar to an animal in retreat. Well, what's the solution? Is he sees a homo politicus. Uh, as the as the answer, which is someone who is not sort of maximizing every decision, sort of again with sort of blinders on, uh, for the sake of do, being whatever capital wants him or her to be and do, but sort of understands that there can be more to life, and that there can be more that you can sort of do. That there you can be more than a homo economicus. You can be you know you. You can be the person you have. You can lead the kind of life you'd have reason to value, but that takes looking at these structures and understanding that they're not simply sort of exogenous, they're not just there, but that they are temporary and time-bound and political, that all of these are political choices, and that we sort of made a choice to live this way, and by our own bizarre and inexplicable apathy, we continue to do so. So, you know, once again, I mean, just like... <laughs> and just like in in the last episode where we talked about um, where we talked about the solutions that Reese Jones offers to the sort of violent borders problem, it's well a borderless communist world. The solution that Fleming offers to the homo economicus problem is well a sort of a, a you could say a politically conscious um, and you could say uh, a solidarity char- and characterized by solidarity uh, working class with a clear political vision. Um, again, I feel like we've fallen into the trap a little bit, uh, not to sort of diminish the analysis itself. We've fallen into a little bit of the trap of sort of saying the solution, saying the end state as the solution, um, because I hate to always end these on a fucking downer, but I, I don't know how we get there. I mean, like I said, the best, I mean, right now the best hope is, you know, organized democratic socialism that sort of seems to be on the rise in at least Canada and the UK. Um, I think one of, last thing, I think, I think one of the reasons that we sort of defend Corbyn so much is that we see him as the main method by which we can create socialism in our time. I guess the, you think the important thing, because I see is like, I see always we're talked of as a cult and it's like, oh, fuck off. But I think the important thing to remember is if we are to become homo politicus is to remember that figures like Corbyn or Bernie Sanders are basic as politicians are basically only useful in as much as they stand for us as the biggest chance of electorally achieving socialism in our time. I think that's one of the important things to remember as we sort of try to hold on to this transformation to homo politicus, as Fleming would say. Because if it's around a single person, then that movement will be as temporary as that person. And to our credit, as a sort of general tendency or movement or whatever, I don't think we're as cultish as everyone thinks we are. I think we are actually not Corbin fanboys or Bernie Bros or whatever, but actually, I think we're just socialists. And I don't think the sort of 
weird middle-aged fucking tea junkies and Orwell fans and, you know, oh, well, I I went to the first to the second summer of love in 89 outside Manchester, probably in a different accent, whatever. I don't think those people understand it. I think they can only see us as having been hoodwinked by some old grifter. But I, I don't know. I don't think we are. So I guess maybe I'm ending this one a little bit more optimistically than previous episodes. Um, anyway, I also just have to go myself. So I'll say um, uh, thank you, everyone who's been listening to us for your patience. I know our release schedule has been a bit erratic recently. Uh, that's because Hussein's traveling. Milo's been in Edinburgh. I've been away. Uh, Nate, our producer, who we're always yelling at, has just moved to Britain. He's now here. Um, but we're all going to be in the same place again, making the same high volume of content that you crave um, from next week. Uh, we've got a lot of really, really, really exciting episodes coming up, and I'm very excited for them to come out. Uh, anyway, thank you to um, uh, 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 Ginseng for our theme song, Here We Go. You can find it on Spotify. Uh, as ever, you can commodify your descent with a t-shirt from Little Comrade. And um, of course, you should always remember um, <laughs> that if you want if you want to cook up actually existing socialism, there's no better way than the fine stoneware of Remy. Good night, everybody.